Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Tanya, a hugely influential 18th century work of Hasidic philosophy and spirituality, is at the foundation of the Kavad Lubavitch movement, indeed written by the movement's founder, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, 1745-1812. We will be looking today at Volume 3 of the Steinseltz Tanya, featuring the late Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz's translation and commentary of two self-contained sections of the Tanya, Sha'ar Hayihud Ve'ha'emunah, or the Gate of Unity in Faith, and Igeret HaTeshuvah, or Letter on Repentance. Join us as we speak with Rabbi Meni Evan Israel, featuring his father's insight on the Tanya. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Rabbi Meni Evan Israel serves as the Executive Director of the Steinselt Center, which oversees the teachings and publications of his father, Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz and which has recently put out an app, the Steinseltz Daily Study. Rabbi Meni, welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you again. So the Tanya is a foundational work for the Kavad movement within Judaism. For those who don't know anything about it, would you begin by explaining first what the Kavad movement is, and maybe what distinguishes the Kavad followers from those of the mainstream Jewish tradition? Okay, so so in order to explain that, we have to go to the major, major, major internal disaster that we faced in 1666, I think around that time, when we had a false messiah named Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was, um, I like to say, was from the Netherlands, and he, he creates quite a popular movement behind him claiming to be the messiah. And it had a major ripple effect on, on the Jewish people in a variety of ways. Um, the reason we call him false messiah, because clearly the messiah is not here physically. So he definitely failed. Um, but in his failing, it was so terrible that the damage was tremendous and created a huge rift in the Jewish community in the sense of, A, those who follow him, those who didn't. And two, one of the things that he used, he claimed to be creating miracles and magic, so to speak, using um, a specific line of learning called the Jewish mysticism called Kabbalah. Kabbalah is, is very famous. Uh, there were few actors and actors that do allegedly believe that they practice something similar. Uh, and the relation between this and real Kabbalah is, is no, nah, there's nothing to say about it. There's no relationship. But he actually was a practice, and the idea of it is that there's energy in the world, and if a person practices a certain way and, and tap into a certain level of something, which I have no idea how, one can reach a divine presence and therefore create or pretend to create something that seems to be um, a new creation, a miracle, so on and so forth. There are thousands of eyewitnesses who claim that this guy, Shabbat made miracles. However, after his demise, the rabbis made a decree 
anybody reading the Jewish mystic work called the Zohar, which is the essential book you have behind you, the Yula book there, um, is really meant to only for people who reach the age of 40. Now, the age of 40 is, is symbolizing, is symbolic from two reasons. One is considered the age of wisdom. You start understanding what your teacher taught you in that age. And two, lifespan was <laughs> very short. You know, if you survive till the age of 40, you know, okay, you can eat whatever you want. So what happened is that as a result of that, the Judaism that we, we, we met in the early 17th century and later, the Judaism was divided to two. Those who know, there are, there are people who learn Talmud, learn Bible, learn the, the verse in the text. And then you had those who, those who did it. So basically you create two uh, classes of people. And those who knew really controlled the community in the sense of knowledge. Obviously, they're not always the richest people, the most powerful people, but it definitely had a lot of control. Basically, the movement of knowledge moved from the Jewish people, so to speak, as a whole, to variety of individuals who were leaders of their own community. Now, it's not clear if Jews always were like this, or there were periods where more availability of knowledge, less availability of knowledge. We know the same things are demanding from, they were demanded from every student throughout history, like reading the, the Bible or reading the Chumash, the five books of Moses. That seems to be something everybody started in age five. Maybe not everybody graduated to the works of the Mishnah, or the oral law, or the work of Talmud, but it seems that somebody had basic. It's, it seems to us that um, the Jewish people in general managed to keep a very high level of literacy relatively to the, to, to the society around them, which, by the way, also was creating one of the reasons to create anti-Semitism, because the Jews knew. You know, and you need to, and they were, you know, before they started dealing with banks, you know, they write letters, they were the advisors, because they knew what to read. I mean, it was part of their upbringing. Anyway, so, so, again, the 17th century, so you have a situation when you have this kind of situation with Jewish people. So, a, a, a holy man named Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov, the man with a good name, who was a, belonged to a, a, a small, a uh, very exclusive spiritual group called the Mikubalim, or the those who practice Kabbalah, or the people actually in their case was the people of the name. Um, and Sheshem, it, it's uh, it's it's mentioned in the text, I think in the Bible somewhere that again I don't know by heart that these people with a name. So these people like they have very specific name and they were considered um, magic workers, kind people very caring about the commoners. So this guy, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement in general, he, he said it makes absolutely no sense that the local common person cannot be part of the learning of the text. Learning the text is very important for us. And he started teaching the masses in one side, and two, he started developing his own spiritual reading of taking the, the high level of mysticism, high level of Kabbalah, from from a theory to a practical teaching. So once he started this, there's starting a rift among the Jewish people, which part you go with? You go with the most traditional line that the leadership only learn, or you have a line that everybody can learn. And it was a big fight. I mean, not everybody who was on either side actually thought about this, thought about it exclusively, but it was part of the reality. 
it was very nasty. I mean, because people were afraid, we are afraid that that people who still remember Shabtai Tzvi or the memory of him with afraid that the Baal Shem Tov is same type of person. And he wasn't. It doesn't seem like he tried to, to say anything that he wanted. Anyway, so he was the founder of the Hasidic movement. And if I'm, if I'm um, not mistaken, he was, he lived around um, sometime in the 17th century. century. Upon his death, upon his death, he had a, a core group of students who became his follower and became the heads of the Hasidic movements, you know, um, became the head of the Hasidic movements in any way, shape, or form that you can see. And there and the very the variety of them. There used to be about 20 groups, and now there are about 40 or 45 major ones. Of course, there are small ones. And usually they they uh, settle in small cities all around Russia, White Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and they develop a Hasidic dynasty, uh, a small rift fifth or kingdom that they uh, they they choose their own. So you have Chabad, which is also known as Lubavitch, was based on the city of Lubavitch. And you have very famous one in New York, you have Satmar, the more Hungarian uh, Hasidus, and they come from Santa Maria de something, and they just shortened it to Satmar. Um, and then you have Bells, and you have Gur, you have many others, but each one of them had a, a fifth of domain that the leader, the Rebbe, is a rabbi and is a Rebbe. A Rebbe is a much bigger leader. He um, he took over this area and he started developing the same idea of, of teaching everybody, caring of everybody, trying to help them um, in any way, shape, or form. The most the most prominent difference between Chabad or what you see around the Shabbat houses. You have, you know, the menorah they have in Hanukkah. You see them walking around, offering people to put filling on, etc., etc. The big major difference between them and other 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 branches is the emphasis of the intellect. The original system of Lubavitch or Chabad was a purely intellect pursuit. You you spend the time constantly of learning and practicing intellectual comprehension of what is around us and more so of how you develop a more spiritual attitude or aptitude to what's around. Um, from understanding different lines and texts and writing them, reading them in a spiritual way to, to, um, to different kind of comprehensions on, on every possible way. So th- that is, I think, the essential part. Would you tell us now about the author of the Tanya, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi? The founder of Chabad movement, who is also the, the, the author of the Tanya, is Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi. He's a guy named Rabbi Shneer Zalman, and he lived in the city of Liadi. And he, he, he became the, the founder of the Hasidic branch of Chabad. Spiritually, he was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. He is considered the top students of his top students. So basically, he was the successor of the successor, and he considered a very high and prominent person. 
He he was born in 1745 and passed away in, in 1813. He he was a descendant of the famous uh, Maharal of Prague. The Maharal of Prague was Rabbi the Levi, Leva of Prague, was the chief rabbi of the city of Prague, very famous for creating the famous golem, depicted in a variety of movies throughout centuries, etc., etc., comics, and so on and so forth. And he was also a descendant, that's what it says on the grave, of Rabbi Leva, that he was a descendant of the house of David. It's, it's in, in the sense of things, it's, it's significant because the numbers of people who can attach them to that particular branch is, is tremendous. I mean, I can detect my line for both sides, both my mother and my father to the, to the Maran part. So these hundreds of thousands of people are that. So we don't take it too seriously about the lineage of the house of David. It's not it. We're not, we're not, we're not taking it seriously. I know it sounds bizarre, but we just don't. So there are too many of us around. Um, so the Alter Rebbe lived in, as we said, about uh, when he did the major work around his 18, beginning of the, 18, the 19th century, 18, 1801, 1802, was a very profound writer, emotionally very attached to, to his inner self, and he cared about the Jewish people and the presence in the sense of that he fought against the decree of the Russian Tsar all the time, creating a position for the Jews that they can live in the cities. He succeeded some, he failed some. He, um, his major political movement was taking a line against Napoleon. Um, I know it sounds maybe funny that a little rabbi in a small village is taking a position against Napoleon, but apparently Napoleon was, was not scared of him, but he considered him as a threat because we know it was sent, to, people were sent to find him and search him. And, and the reason is very obviously because he had a network of people everywhere. You know, the Hasidic movement developed, you know, very rapidly. So basically you have, so to speak, I don't think they meant to be, to become secrets, uh, secrets, uh, cells, but that's what happened, right? Because they already were in a fight with the local other Jews, right? They're those who are opposing, that's the name, the Misnagdem, you know, the Litvaks. You know, they already had, you know, so they already been in hiding. And two, they were all, all over the place because they had to travel back and forth. So they had a network of, of information. And it seems like he took a position um, against Napoleon, and which I think in end caused his, his untimely death um, because he ran away from this. And I presume that the health care that they could provide him was less. He's also very famous to be in jail. He was actually put in jail by a snitch so to speak, uh, a whistleblower, so to speak, from the community who didn't like, did not want to support him and went up to a major lawsuit in that time. Again, but he won and he became free and, and so on and so forth. But his main, his main idea in his life was to create the Chabad movement, which really generally referred to is an acronym, Chabad. It's, it's in Hebrew, it's the three letters, Chet, Bet, and Dalet. Right, which is together mean Chabad, but it's the acronym of Chokma Bina Da, which are Chokma is wisdom, Bina is understanding, and that is knowledge, which is the key concept of the Chabad movement in general. You have a spark of knowledge that is undefined yet. You know, it's 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 uh um it's what's his name Archimedes in the bath. You know, he's not really sure yet 
you said Eureka, but if you ask me that second to write it, you cannot do it immediately. You have to sit down and expand on it. So the, that particular moment of knowledge, that is wisdom or a shining, you know, as a flashlight, something, as a flash. Then you have understanding, which is really the function of the brain to develop the idea, to give it depth and length and width, and, and you're creating all this perspective. And then you have the level of knowledge that when I get the idea, I accept the idea, I, I completely follow what I am, I understand the concept, and then I can even utter it out. That was the main, the main, main purpose of the Alter Rebbe. And he, um, he quite succeeded. I mean, it's, Chabad is definitely most likely, I mean, a lot of people don't like to hear it, but <laughs> the largest Jewish organization in the world. Talking about over 4,000 4, branches, um, worldwide, ranging from, um, literally from Hawaii to, to New Zealand. I mean, the entire, uh, segment of the earth. They usually provide a lot of services for the local Jewish travelers, local Jewish community. In general, they're in a good relationship with the local, whatever it is, authorities, uh, religious people, and so on and so forth. So they're very, very powerful. So clearly, the the founding member of this movement, the Alter Rebbe, was actually, he knew what he's doing. So was Rabbi Zalman intending to start a movement? So I don't know if he actually tried to create a movement. Obviously, he tried to create his own path that was more defined and his, 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 uh, his, I call them uh, people, his colleagues and people on the same, uh, mindset. He defined a more of a, of a clear path, a heavier path, a heavier, um, guideline. So how does Zalman's writing of the Tanya relate to the movement? And, and the way it fits to the Tanya, the, you know, every movement, every movement, even sub movement in the big movement, it have some kind of a calling card. Some kind of a thing that, some kind of a text, some kind of information that will help us to, to guide us through the, the perils of life. I mean, sadly enough, I'm not, I'm not as acquainted with, uh, different variation on the church, on variety of books in the church. I mean, I never was, sorry, never was my training. Uh, but you know, I know that, you know, you have the writings of the elders of the church from fourth and fifth century who became the core basis of Catholic religion. Catholic um, Christianity, and you have later on you have the the Anglican work. I mean, yeah, you have works every generation. You have somebody who writes to create a path to himself, maybe define what is it. So, you know, in, in the same context of, of mindset, the author will create this um, amazing, in my view, probably one of the best books ever written, called the Tanya. Now, the Tanya is is really the the Tanya is the calling card of Lubavitch, the calling card of the Chabad movement, but it's also a really good book. It, it, the book itself divided divide into five separate parts, and I'll go through them just to go give one, and then we'll discuss them in length. Um, the first volume, dealing with the essence of the soul. Over there, he described very clearly what he think is the goal of the Jewish soul, mainly from the perspective of the six hundred ten commandments and the, the responsibility of the Jewish soul relatively to any soul in the world. But mainly, he doesn't really care about, doesn't deal really with 
the, the outside world. This is a guidebook for his followers, for his Jewish people, and and therefore he's not. That's not the intention to deal with the non-Jewish world. That's the first volume of the book, and that's the major work. It's fifty-three chapters. Second part dealing with the essence of the world. The essence of the world, as we see it, is 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 very unspiritual. The problem is that if we take um, what we call basic Greek philosophy, 12th century, 10th century, 9th century debate, and, and dealing with the concept of God, once we assume God is infinite, which that's the that's actual definition of a God, is has no limits, no shape, and no form, then, by definition, everything around us is godliness or part of God. Because if there's any location that God doesn't exist, which means God become limited. If God become limited, he's no longer God. It cannot be a place that God is not completely dwelling in. Which means you, between me, between your books, between your community, students, everybody, they're all part, the, the word, everything around us is part of godliness. The problem is that if everything is godliness, how come I see you? How come you see me and we don't see God? If God is, again, if God is infinite and God has no limitation, how is there a possibility that we see each other? How come we have a physical form? And more so, most of the time when I walk in the street, I feel myself. I don't feel God. The opposite. I, I exist and God doesn't exist. You know, in, in a sense, very crude terms, I know I exist because I touch myself, because I have a feeling, because I have emotions. And God is the spiritual being that I hope is there. But in reality, it's exactly the opposite. I'm not here in the sense of really truthful building, existing, because God is everything. So in, in the second book of Tanya, he explained the structure, the way it works, how the work built in, 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 uh, in, in the, the utterances of God, the ten uh, utterances that God used to create the world, they are really the basic building blocks of our reality. The, that's the second book. The third book builds the concept that we we take very seriously, the concept of repentance. Repentance is a very um, peculiar phenomenon. Repentance suggests that I have an impact, I have a possibility to travel in time. So to speak, you know, figuratively speaking. Because if I did a sin in point A and I repent, I go back in time, so to speak, and erase that, erase that action. There's no longer an impact to what I do. Therefore, the, he explains, that's what is out there, the text in that book, and explain the purpose of it. How does it work? What are you supposed to do? How it can be done? Why can, why, the, why does it have this kind of impact? I can go back and forth in time. The book that we just published, book number three, number three, is actually this book. It's the two volumes of the Guide of Understanding and, and the Guide of Repentance. That is basically the third book. The fourth book is um, Gerta Kodesh, which is a, a collection of letters that the Al-Qurabi wrote, both to his Hasidim, to his followers, people around them, and but they got upgraded, so to speak, from a regular letter you send to community 
very meaningful um, decrees or discussion or conversation that eventually end up in this particular book. So that is that is uh, the fourth part. And the fifth part is a something called um, the fifth part is a book called Kuntres Ahron, which is basically last word. So after the, the book was complete, they found other texts who are very, very close and remotely and, and highly connected to the previous chapter, previous full volume, and they add them to it. So that would be the fifth and last part of it. In, in, in the perspective of a typical Chabad Hasid, Chabad follower, the holiness of the book is equal to the holiness of the five books of Moses. In, in the perspective of the Hasid, obviously he understands that the Chumash is higher, the five books of Moses are higher, but in the mindset, this is as essential, as key to, to a Lubavitcher Hasid growth as the Bible. And, and therefore, the emphasis of learning it, understanding it, comprehending it, and so on and so forth. Now, in the introduction of the book, the 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 Alter Rebbe writes something very, very interesting. He basically says, the reason I'm writing this book is is because I don't have time. I don't have time to, to deal with all of you people. And instead of him, you know, saying, listen, I give up. You know, I'll quit my job. I said, I will write a book. Okay. I will write a book. I write a book and, um, that book will be my replacement. If you have any question, find the book and, and find an answer there. So two things. First of all, clearly it didn't work for him because people keep bothering him for the rest of his life. And two, it is, it is a very close to the truth. This book have a tremendous amount of impact. If you read it carefully, and again, it takes uh, some time. It's not, uh, it's not an easy read in any way, shape, or form. It really gives answers to almost everything. Again, you have to go through some of the processes and read it and to, you know, to put the layers that, um, based on time and place, that, you know, they're not fitting to what we do. But in general, he talks, for example, about the internal struggle between good and bad. You know, and instead of taking the position of the 16th and 17th century that these, that evil is external, it's really referred to evil as an internal part. Because in mindset, which, which obviously I agree, says, what is real, what is the evil we're talking about? Evil on, uh, evil on the, on the main, let's take something that is as uh, horrendous and terrible as, as killing. Normal human being, that's not a struggle for him. I personally never struggled with the notion of killing somebody. I never struggled with the notion of stealing something. Most of the negative, most of the commandments, negative commandments, if you think about them, they're not something that somebody is really, normal human being doesn't deal with them all the time. They're definitely not these struggles. No, it might happen from time to time. You have occurrence of something that is uniquely put in front of you and you have to overcome it. But in general, in general, the big, big sins are not really, most people don't deal with them. It's like, in a sense, is the concept of freedom of choice. If I'm in a desert, if I'm in a desert, I walk in a desert, okay, and I walk now 20 miles, 30 miles, right, and I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm almost dead. And somebody offered me jalapeno 
jalapeno, uh, jalapeno pepper. I'm not eating it. I'm going to die. You know, I need water. It's not really a choice. I give you water and jalapeno pepper. Actually, most likely people who know science will tell you you should eat jalapeno because they have much more, much more, uh, value to it. But I'm saying in the mindset, you don't really choose that or, you know, eating a prickly pear or eating some, you know, cactus. Obviously you eat the, drink the water. When you have like, when you have negative and positive, when you have things that are, um, the things that are, 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 um, are really essential to our core, that's not the issues. The issues are not, we're not dealing with these things. And, and by the way, and that's the reason when, when the world is, um, when, when the world is bad, when the world is evil, we, we, that's the reason we are so surprised because, you know, it, it's, um, shouldn't be happening. Person should never let go down to kill a fellow human being. It, it, it's outrageous. It's not supposed to be working there. You know, stealing, doing, this is evil. And so the, the Alter Rebbe, the, the founder of the, the Alter Rebbe, the Shino Zalm of Riyadi, basically what he does is basically telling you this, I'm not care. I don't care about it. This is, this is bigger issue. I'm not dealing, this is your problem. What he's dealing with is, is the inner dem, demons. It's the inner struggles. It's the inner perspective of making life better today than it was yesterday. And he's probably the first one to to brings it up that the, the war, the internal war between our um, between our inclination, between our natural um, behavior, between our mundane life to a spiritual life, are constant. Do I spend my time efficiently? So apparently, this question started before we had phones. You know, it was something that we we always struggle with. Do we really make it efficient? Do we really make a decision that today is better than yesterday? Did I advance to this, this, did I advance today more than I advanced yesterday? I don't know. But that's the struggle. If I have a bad habit, I'm not again. We're not talking about big things. But let's say you have a struggle with a diet. Right? So you ask yourself, how come I cannot control my body? How come I cannot control my body? I know it's not good for me, and I'm still doing that, right? And, and something about smoking or drinking or, or whatever we do that is, you know, it's negative. If it's playing computer games or it's, you know, anything we do that became, maybe it's addicted, maybe it's it's part of the, the notion. The, 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 the Tanya is dealing with that notion, how to get over, how to break it down. Again, and he says it's a major struggle. It's not something, it's not a walk in the park. It's not something you say, oh. I can do this and done. He said, part of the work that you need to do is a constant work. And the more you, the more you work on it, the more you create an environment that, that make your decision, your ability to make this decision easier and clearer, easier for you. Easier, easier it becomes. The more I spend, the more you work on it, the more you, you, you create it, the more it, it's become realistic. And, and he's using this metaphor, this idea of thinking, creating emotion, constantly both on positive and negative, both on a personal relationship and divine relationship. He said, look, if, if you love a person, one of the reasons if you go and interview a young people, ask them why you love this person, 
they 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 tell you they think about it all day. That's part of the infatuation infatuation with somebody you love, somebody you care about. You constantly think about them. You care about what you do. You care what they say. You go and, and, and you basically you're creating a cycle in your mind of love. So the same thing happened with God. I mean, when you start thinking about is there a God? Once you decide there is a God, whatever reason it is, because the creation is so beautiful, because whatever it is, you, you start working on it, and the more you think about it, the easier it's become. Now, it's a process, and you have to spend the time and effort to do so. It's not going to happen on, on, um, automatically. And he said the same thing happened with, with negative feelings or negative, or negative actions. You know, if you want to do it properly, you need constantly bottle it, constantly fight with it, constantly put that evil inclination in its place. And the main thing is that you cannot blame anybody else. That is the bottom line of it. It doesn't matter what experience you had in life, which, you know, most psychologists, that's where they make the money. Um, you know, blaming something for something, and which is, a lot of it is correct. Obviously, your upbringing, your ancestors, your, your trauma of the community, it's all true. But in the real world, the really what I, if I have to be a better human being, it's me. I have to be a better human being. Nobody else will help me to be a better human being. This is my job. Clearly, this is my job. And I have to struggle with it in a constant level. It's not, that is the, I think the main lesson of the book is, is if you take the, the core, core part of it, is this a concept of a struggle? And more so, he, he can go even to a level and said, even if there's somebody that, for example, he said, very interesting that he brings it, somebody that is emotionally or physically, he's not aroused. He's not a sexually, not a sexual being. And you think, oh, what a holy man doesn't, he doesn't think about doing wrong things. So the 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 outer the outer rebel looked at him and said, "Nah, that's cute, but no, I want the struggle. I want somebody to find something. You know, if a guy exists like that, or not true, this a guy like this exists, he has to struggle on other things. So, example, he said, if somebody has a natural feeling of learning Torah, you know, some people can just pick up a book and read and read and read and read, and is that a struggle for them? Do they?" They, they move forward to, to work on it. The answer is no. So you said they need to find a way that the struggle become real. And, and the idea behind it in a lot of ways is the more you work on it, the more you create those layers upon layers upon layers of, of love and care, of, of emotional, emotional, uh, well-being, the more you're able to overcome your negative attributes. Example, you know, it's, it's again, it's psychology 101, but again, he talks about it a hundred years before. And basically saying, look, when you have, you have a negative feeling, example, you have anger issue. So obviously you can, there's one option is to ignore it completely and say it doesn't happen. And then what happened? It, it happens and then you, and then you lose your temper and you lose your feelings and then you give up and then you become depressed because you, you gave up all those emotions, and you become angry. But I said, instead of that, I said, let's work on it. Let's really deal with the issue and say, why are you angry? Why are you getting angry? What is the what is the what is the triggers that bring you? But he talks about it in a spiritual way. He talks about it in the sense of um, he is using an allegory of a small city 
the, the heart, the soul, as these two kings are constantly fighting. One is fighting to do good, and one is fighting to do, not to do even bad, even to deter you from doing good. It doesn't have to do real bad. It just has not to let you do good. And that is the constant struggle. And the more you work on it, the more you compassionately and passionately being there, the more it becomes a reality. More you take off another chip of that particular wood of negativity. That is the call. That is literally the, the main purpose of the book. Now, even though this is the first published, it's actually the third volume of the Steinseltz Tanya. Which further volumes should we look out for? Right. So, it's, it, it, what happened is we, we um, as this thing happened all the time, you know, we, we got a sponsor to do this volume. We just want to do this volume. We are working volume one and two and, 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 uh, I think it's four, five, and six. I'm not sure whether it's four and five. Um, that will come out. But this particular volume also has a benefit because it really encompasses it in, in it two books. Both is the, what are called the sustaining utterance, which is referring to the, the ten utterances that God used to create the world. This is what's called the guide of, of, uh, unity and faith. Because it's a, in the end of the time when you finish the book, you have Understanding the unification of God with the world. And two, you understand the concept of faith. What does it mean? Then, the second part I'm talking about is the book about repentance. Because eventually when a person goes go through the method and you understand that the world, the world has a path. The world goes from point A to point B. And one, a lot of time when you cross a certain point, you look at this, like there's no hope. There's despair. Because you know, I did so much wrong. I did, uh, maybe I was not, maybe I was not as attuned to what I am. Maybe I was not as clear as I am. And the book about repentance giving you the guideline and saying, you know what? Is hope. There's a way to fix it in a way that not just it become, not like you erased it a little bit, you know, that you took the marking on your soul a little bit. You can get in a situation that there's no marking at all. And more so, there's a higher level than that. You can use this marking as making this, Illumination for what you do. So not just you, you repent on the evil, you create something much higher than that. So what's up ahead for you in the Steinselt Center? You know, I, uh, as, you, as I keep, uh, as I keep preaching, um, they, uh, our app, the Steinselt Center app is up and running. Still on advanced beta, still better, but we actually this week we hope to launch the, the Bible in it. My father had uh, my father had a um, certain way of committing his people to learn the entire Bible in a year cycle, in a yearly cycle. Of course, this is uh, we call the Jewish Bible, only 24 books. Um, but the idea is to to create a system that basically you read a chapter, chapter and a half every day, because obviously we assume that your reading of the daily Torah portion, part of a custom, and the daily Psalms of the month. Automatically, so once you take this uh, two major parts of the Bible, you left a thing with 500 and something chapters, and that we divide from a father's birthday, which is the third day of Av, till the consecutive till the next year, you know, second day of Av, which is the 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 10 month of the Jew in the 11 month of the Jewish year, Jewish calendar. Um, 
and and you know so we uploaded it and uh the next project is basically finishing uploading everything and then creating uh a system with it what do we do with it and etc uh, etc et rabbi many it's been a delight thank you for talking with us today okay my, my pleasure my pleasure and honor friends you've been listening to new books and jewish studies a channel of the new books network until next time goodbye <laughs>